This episode of GT the Podcast is sponsored by Alcon Global Medical Affairs. Hey everybody, welcome to a special edition of Glaucoma Today, the podcast. Uh, my name is Paul Singh. I'm a glaucoma anterior segment surgeon out in southeastern Wisconsin, and I'm honored and privileged to be hanging out with two fantastic surgeons and educators, Christine Funky from Phoenix, Arizona. What's up, Christine? Hey there, how are you? Awesome, doing well. Looking forward to a fun discussion. And of course, we have Pradeep Ramalu from Baltimore, Maryland at Wilmer. What's up, bud? Hey, Paul, how are you? Christine, how are you? Hello, great. We're really pumped, you guys. So today we're going to talk about the Hydrus Microstent and the Horizon trial, some of the best data we have in the MIGS world. And so we're going to kind of have a real-life discussion. But the idea today is, you know, we're going to talk about data, of course, and data is important, no doubt. But really, what more important thing is just talk about real life. You know, what do we do in practice? You know, MIGS has gone through an, an evolution over the last decade now of being approved over in 2012 in terms of you know the first stenting that we had available. And now we have the Horizon trial showing us great data for the Hydrus and other MIGS procedures. So kind of want to talk about in context of MIGS to today, kind of where we're at, where we use the Hydrus. How does the data help us understand where the Hydrus fits and how we judge and maybe how do we decide what is uh, truly uh, kind of successful in our practice? And so that's the idea today as well. So I kind of want to start us off by just telling, you know, asking you guys before we start in general. I mean, are you guys using the Hydrus a lot in your practice? Christine, is some, tell me about your practice and how, how you utilize the Hydrus overall. Sure. So my practice, I am seeing probably about 90% glaucoma. And of that, I think over the last several years, as minimally invasives have become more of a standard of care, um, I would say of my cataract surgeries, I think probably about 80% are getting some form of minimally invasive with them. Uh, and of that, a lot of them are getting a hydrus uh, as part of that package. So it's become a mainstay, I think, of a lot of what I'm doing at this point, especially in conjunction with cataract surgery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Pradeep, you know, of course, love to hear your thoughts on where, how you use the hydrus. But, you know, in general, talk about MIGS combination cataract. And I mean, is there a reason if you if to not do a MIGS during cataract surgery? Love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, Paul, I think it's really been, um, you know, kind of analogous to discussing uh, lens choices in the, in the setting of cataract surgery. You know, you really have to bring up, you know, a toric if somebody's got an astigmatism you know, a multifocal, assuming that they don't have, you know, moderate to severe glaucoma, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's really the same thing has happened in, in glaucoma, where if somebody is on drops, is on therapy, and you think they need therapy, you know, you really have to discuss this option with your patients. And uh, I think if discussed in an honest way, in an open way, you know, in, including the risks and benefits of the procedure, you know, the large majority of patients will, will uh, want to have it. Uh, when the when the indication is appropriate, like Christine, almost all my practice is glaucoma. So, but anybody who's on a medication is usually getting some sort of MIGS procedure. And if they're an open angle, you know, I like to use the thing, you like to use the device that has the greatest evidence behind it. And I just love the five-year data from Hydrus uh, that that really you know shows that this procedure works over a very long period of time. And our patients, you know, we don't know how long they're going to live, but a lot of them live with the disease for 10, 20 years from the time of their cataract surgery. And so it's nice to know that we can cover, you know, potentially a big portion of that with a procedure. 
Yeah, man, you made some good points there. You know, we talk about the fact we're, we're going to talk about success and what does it mean to get off of medications? I mean, the data shows us that we have a better chance, hopefully, of getting people off of medications after stenting with the hydras versus cataract surgery alone. Um, but, you know, I want to talk to you about a couple of things first, because to me, what MIGS has done has really got us thinking again about mechanism of action, right? Before we had MIGS, it was, you know, basically drops, drops, drops. And we talked about mechanism of action with drops, but it was then this through trab or tube or something like that. And we didn't really care about mechanism because we knew what was happening, right? But now with MIGS, we're talking about where the resistance is. I mean, talk about that, Christine, about us not preoperatively, not knowing where the resistance is to outflow. Is it TM? Is it the canal collapse? Is it the distal collector channels? And, and how maybe the hydrus and the trimodal mechanism of action, how that makes a difference theoretically to you. Talk about that for me, if you don't mind. I know. I, I actually think that's one of the big positives of this minimally invasive compared to other things out there. Um, and like you said, you don't know where you're having the resistance. And so with that, if I can hit as many different points of the potential resistance, the happier I'm going to be. And most likely, I would assume also my outcomes are going to be that much better. So when we talk about hydrus, what makes it different is that we are working on several different places, like you alluded to, including we're having a larger pore size to get entrance into the actual canal. Um, and then you have these eyelets that are going to open or stent open the canal that could potentially be herniated. So we know that I am hitting multiple collector channels with one single device. And that means a lot to me as well, because I know I'm going to have a better chance of hitting the right spots by using this device as opposed to kind of guessing um, based on what the anatomy looks like. No, that's a great summary. And, you know, Pradeep, taking to what Christine said, you know, talk to me about, like, just to remind everybody, the hydrus, what it's doing, this whole idea of trimodal mechanism. What does that mean exactly and kind of this whole scaffolding? Can you talk more about the stent itself, how long it is, and what she means by, you know, accessing multiple collector channels? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think that it really, uh, you know, first of all, it's bypassing the trabecular meshwork. You know, it's, uh, it's creating a fistula between the anterior chamber and Schlem's canal. And, uh, you know, it's also stenting, uh, stenting things open. So, you know, opening up that uh, canal. And uh, as Christine was mentioning, it does it over a long period of time. And it does it with a very kind of clever design where, you know, really most of the scaffolding is on the, uh, on the internal side. So on the side facing the trabecular meshwork. So it's really kind of opening and leaving open that area to the collector channels. And it's doing it over a large enough period of time that it really should, you know, expose that aqueous to numerous collector channels. And so it really gives you more confidence mechanistically that this is something that's likely to work. Yeah, and I love the fact that it's minimally destructive to the target tissues. You know, we talk about MIGs being minimally destructive. I mean, really, you're keeping a lot of the natural TM available. You're just going through a small portion of TM to get that into the canal. And, you know, what you know, people talk about the length of the stent, you know, being eight millimeters long. And is that an issue? Talk about that, you know, Christine. The fact that, you know, it's mostly it's in the canal, not in, exposed to the anterior chamber and how from a comfort level, do you feel safe to safety and et cetera, from a surgeon perspective? I have to back up because I feel like you like hit the heartstrings that I have about sparing tissue. <laughs> yeah, please talk, this is open. Just, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, like tissue sparing has just been something that I've been really passionate about for a long time. And this is something that we are doing tissue sparing surgery. Um, I know there's a lot of different options out there. Um, but I find that I like SLT. So I like to back up and say, I love SLT. I love SLT first line. And when I'm doing minimally invasives, I don't want to limit myself later. And I know that just like everything else in glaucoma, it has a limited time, right? That it's going to be functioning for me. So if I can save room for something else later, especially something minimal like 
SLT or who knows what else is coming down the line with minimally invasives, the better. So when we talk about hydrus, one other thing that I love about it is just that it's tissue sparing. And that means that it's sparing me my own personal trauma later when I have to tell a patient that they need another surgery because I still have a lot of options. But also in terms of safety, uh, having this not very much of this in the AC is probably something that's nice. I was a big side pass user in the past. Um, and so with that, we got hit with endothelial cell loss and we had lost that device. But when it comes to this device, I feel safe uh, around where it's sitting with most of it being tucked away. So I think it gives me comfort and it also gives, you know, patients comfort that this is something that they're never going to know is, is even there. Yeah. I mean, but not, you know, 90% of it's in the, is actually in the canal, not, not a lot of it's exposed in the AC and it's exposed parallel to the TM versus pointing, pointing back up at you towards the AC. So it's nice from a kind of contour, it's a nitinol material, which is also very flexible, follows the contour of the eye very nicely as well. But talk about that, you know, pretty, a little bit about what Christine was saying about kind of ver verifying the placement, how you know it's in the right, right place. So from a surgeon perspective, Talk about the learning curve and a little bit about how to place it and some pearls as well, because that's something that I think people talk about a lot. Being larger, they get a little fearful, but I think it's truly, truly intuitive. So talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of lost track of what fellow number I'm on in terms of having taught this, but it's probably, <laughs> it's, it's, in, it's in the double digits. Everybody's go. gotten it. You know, it didn't, you know, I think they end up leaving here, you know, doing probably, you know, triple digits of them, but it doesn't take triple digits to learn the procedure. You know, so, um, you know, it's, it, uh, you know, they're, they're getting it, you know, by, you know, by the 10th procedure often earlier, but, you know, I think, you know, first thing I'm going to mention, which you guys can elucidate on is, is really visualization. You know, um, if you're not looking at what you're supposed to be looking at, you're going to have a hard time getting it in. So, you know, it, 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 you have to be comfortable in the angle and, you know, before you step into this, you know, just make sure you're comfortable with your intraoperative gonioscopy. You know, you may want to do some gonioscopy on just some, on some regular FACOs. So I, I think I can leave it to you and Christine to talk about some of the tips. Yeah, Christine, I mean, I know we've even harped on this for 10 years now about visualization, but but I I still think it's still like the crucial part of any MIGS procedure. I don't care if it's hydrous or something else. It's just getting keeping getting a good view, number one, making sure you have an on FOSS view, right? The TM facing you. But talk about a, little, a couple of things. Talk about some pearls and how to maintain or how to get a good view, but also maybe some hydrous pearls, maybe incision placement, kind of angulation, things like that, and what to watch out for. Absolutely. I feel like view is 90% of this procedure as with like all minimally invasives. If I don't have a good view or if my view isn't on FOSS, like you said, if it's, if I'm not getting a great view of that TM and into the spur, I have to reposition before I'll even go forward. Cause I know I'm going to make my work harder than it really needs to be. Um, once I have a good view and good position, I feel like usually the rest is a pretty easy go. Uh, in terms of pearls of what I tell people when I'm teaching them what I'm what I'm doing and how I have the success I have with this device. And again, I think it's pretty intuitive. Um, I like to use a lot of OVD to really open up the angle. Um, I turn the head quite a bit so that again, I almost feel like I'm getting to a point where you almost feel as if you can start to see the angle without the gonio prism. Now, of course you can't, but it's almost turned to that position. And then for my hand positions, I, uh, I actually do my FACO wound um, to the side. So I make my, my main stab and my secondary wound uh, kind of like a pie piece where my main wound is to my right. And so I already have the angle that I need in order to get access to have uh, a good flat entrance uh, with the hydrus. 
I know also a lot of people will make another incision, which I also think is great. Uh, but I think the main goal for whatever incision you're going through is making sure that the cannula is flat up against TM. If you have a flat cannula and you can just roll right in, I think that's helpful. Uh, I think you're going to go in the right trajectory of where that canal is running. Because again, like we've talked about, this device is already made to fit inside of um, inside of that area naturally. I also like to score a little bit. I think my first minimally invasive that I started doing, uh, aside from eye stent, was eye track. And so I had to make a small goniotomy. So maybe that's just now like my go-to. But I do, I make a small goniotomy. It gives me a little better visualization, especially in people who don't have much pigment in their drainage structures. Uh, I think that's really helpful when you're first learning too, because when you open up underneath the TM, you'll see the shine of uh, the back part of the canal. And so you really know you're in the right spot and then, and then go for it. And uh, I would say 95% of the time, if you've got a good view, your hand's in the right place and you know you're in the right spot, you're gonna have a very easy delivery. Yeah, I, mean, I think you made some really good points. I think that that's that incision placement of that, where the hydrus goes through, it's about three clock hours away from the intended site of insertion, whether it's your main incision or another paracentesis is so crucial. Uh, don't don't skip on that step. <laughs> I think it's really important. No. <laughs> uh, and, you know, keeping a steady hand position, I aim a little bit upward, maybe 15 degrees upward towards the, towards the TM. And then you don't have to push very hard. I think one thing I've found is that people, I know scoring is great. Or if you don't score, just don't push so hard where it gets buried in there because then you'll hit the sclera wall. So that's a small nuances. But really, once you get the hang of it, it should go in like butter, right? I mean, you really shouldn't feel pain or resistance. If you feel resistance, that's a sign, right? We might be in another spot. So how do you know if you're in a super serious space? Well, you just retract it back and people should, they'll feel discomfort. You know you're in the wrong space. But when it's in the right space, it goes in beautifully. And you see those windows go in there nicely as well. So open up the clamshell and I just kind of open it up and then I kind of remove it circumferentially so I don't pull on the actual inlet itself as well. Sometimes you have to reposition it. You have the ease of retracting it back. And if you place it, you don't like it, you can use that loader to just kind of retract it right back into the loader really, really simply, which I think is fantastic. And you can change hand positions. You can change your, make another incision if you have to. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. Uh, so great, great pearls there, Christine. Let's talk about success as well. You know, I mean, you know, we think about like success, not just at three months, at six months, but, you know, kind of one year, two years as well. And, you know, I want to get your thoughts when you define success. And we're going to go through the horizon trial in a second and, and the five-year date as well as two and five-year. But, you know, I just want to just kind of talk about, you know, cataract surgery. There's, there's been this kind of still this a narrative that, you know, cataract surgery does enough to kind of get the pressures down. So really, why do we have to do MIGs? And, you know, we, we do know that it works. But, talk, you know, Pradeep, talk about kind of how long cataract surgery lasts, some of the data out there as well, and maybe consider like the hydrus, and what does it mean after not just six months, but one year, two years and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the FDA um, did a really good job of really kind of putting it out there about, you know, how we should test the efficacy of these devices, you know? So there was really a very, you know, strict and uh, somewhat onerous protocol, but at the end of the day, it really taught us, you know, how much is actually happening from the device and how much is happening from the cataract surgery alone. So just to remind everybody, you know, they they required a man, you know, they required a washout at baseline. So they had everybody's baseline IOP and then they washed people out again in these post-operative periods. And so, you know, when you actually look at the, you know, the washed out diurnal IOP and compare that between the uh, the eyes that had cataract surgery with the hydrus and cataract surgery alone, you know, you can see that you're retaining the effect of IOP lowering in the hydrus group. And it's starting to wear off in the cataract group. Probably the best one is the OATS data, you know, where they uh, where they really had many time points of IOP measurement after before and after cataract surgery. 
and they found the same thing that you know you got a you know, pretty decent amount of IOP lowering, maybe about fifteen percent, sixteen percent. But it started wearing off, and by three years, it really had dropped to less than ten percent. So you know, I think that this goes along with what we know about a cataract surgery IOP lowering from other sources. That you know, really, most of it is for the first year or two, and it's starting to go away. And probably by about three or four years, there's not very much of an effect left. And so the stint is, you know, when you start getting to those later time points, is really probably carrying most of the load, as you said, Paul. Yeah, and I think and that, that's a key, right, Christine? I mean, we, we tend to think of glaucoma a lot of times, that, oh, look, it's six months later, look at how good we did. But, you know, we got to think long term. And, you know, does a year or two or three make a difference in terms of just this longevity of, of these procedures compared to, let's say, cataract surgery alone? Let's say it only lasts another two or three years more. Is that important, by the way? I think that's important to our patients. And it's probably very important to us too, right? I, I think the goal for all of us, especially in the world of being glaucoma surgeons, is we're just trying to prolong um, keeping vision around, right? That's always the goal. So to have five-year data to talk about is, is awesome. I mean, it gives them extra confidence that what I'm doing is scientifically based and that I know what I'm talking about. And that gives them a lot of confidence to move forward with what we're doing in the operating room together. Well, great discussion. I think we, we kind of, I think, discussed the mechanism of action and the, kind of the importance of kind of just trimodal mechanism of action as well. And then really trying to get people hopefully off of some medications. Let's talk about the data that supports that <laughs> and really the efficacy. And, uh, you know, Christine, talk about the kind of impact of the horizon trial and you clinically and, and kind of why that data set is so impactful and kind of so robust. Yeah, it was actually when the five-year data came out, I think is when I really started to change how I was using Hydrus. Initially, I started using it kind of in lieu of side pass um, as kind of my more moderate to angling towards severe patients. And then when the five-year data came out and it, I started to see the percent of patients up into the 70% range of single med patients who were off their medication for over five years, that changed everything for me because there was finally data to support that there was something that was going to have more longevity. Uh, and that was when I started to use this on my single med mild patients. And so I think that's where for me, Horizon kind of was like a light bulb, was that this is something that can be used in a broad way uh, and didn't need to be singled or pigeonholed into a certain category of patients, but actually had uh, a large benefit in terms of the breadth of my glaucoma clinic. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think we kind of pigeonholed it initially. It was like, okay, it has some of the best data. So I'm going to use it for my moderate patients on three meds. But you realize that the safety, as we'll talk about, is so is, is really overall very positive. Also, that hey, why not that one med patient? You know, who's doing cataract surgery, that mild patient at one med. So let's uh, definitely want to kind of talk about that too some more because it's a really good point you brought up uh, as well. You know, in terms of design, uh, Pradeep, the Horizon trial. Talk about the five-year plan follow-up. What does that mean to you? Because that was really something I, I think was really to me really impactful. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I think that you know the you know the manufacturers and the those who designed the trial and carried it out really need to be given a lot of credit. You know, they you know they really wanted to follow this out for a long time. You know, they kept people in the trial. You know, that eighty percent of people were still in the trial after five years, which is a very difficult thing to do to really keep people engaged and coming back and making sure they're not lost to follow-up, which could introduce some bias into the trial. And to have that data going so far out is exactly what Christine said. You know, you can, you can tell patients more confidently that this is a procedure that's likely going to last for, you know, a considerable amount of your disease. I agree with Christine also, you know, there's kind of this notion out there that, well, this is a bigger device, so, you know, you should save it for battered glaucoma, you know, but that logic doesn't really fit, you know, you know, you want, you want the device that has the best data. 
even if you have early glaucoma, you know, why does that mean that it's only reserved for like more severe glaucoma? So, you know, for me, my, my cutoff if, if is they're on therapy, you know, if they're, if they're controlled and they're on therapy, uh, it's a great indication. Yeah, I mean, you made a good point. But yeah, I mean, the study, as you mentioned, five-year planned, five-year follow-up is really important in multiple countries around the world as well. So pretty, pretty impressive data set out there. So in general, talk about what, what medication burden reduction means to you again and how you how that defines success. And so we mentioned earlier, and, and Christine, you mentioned how you can tell your patients that you have a better chance of being off of medications. This is yeah, at, at the two-year and the five-year mark, more than more than cataract surgery alone. But when you define success. How do you define success? Is it IOP reduction, you know, 20% reduction, which you see more in the category? Is it medication burden reduction? Is it both? Talk about that. I think I, I think we've been able to change our perspective on what success is as, as we've gotten more deep into how we're using MIGS and how we've had a lot more options. Um, for me personally, at this point, I define success for the majority of my patients of getting them off as many medications as possible. And I think we underplay a lot of times how much of a burden that is to people, medications. Um, I had a patient today who's an awesome example that I hear more than maybe we should, uh, who just said I changed her whole life because her eyes don't hurt anymore and she's not red and she didn't know for five years why she was so miserable. And she went to four different doctors and no one could figure it out, right? So she had allergies to bromonidine. She was she was a mess when I first met her. And so the fact that I could offer her something different, something that is low risk, high yield, and that ultimately she can successfully feel like she can function in her life better. I mean, that's massively successful both to her and to me. Um, and so for me, success is becoming more about patient quality of life. And then also, of course, stabilizing this disease. And so I guess that's where I've come to defining minimally invasive success at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to me, this whole, what's changed so much philosophically for me, this whole interventional mindset we have now is not having to choose anymore. Like we used to between controlling glaucoma, being aggressive with IOP reduction and dealing with compliance and saying, oh, well, can I also maintain high quality life at the same time? It's either one of the Right. And now we actually can do both, which I think is really impressive as well. And and so I, I think for me, you know, for the how how impactful, I mean, how much of an issue do you think compliance is in your practice, whether it's ocular surface disease, forgetfulness, costs, all those things. I mean, how much of an impact do you think it has on your patients compliance in general, poor compliance? Well, it's always out there, Paul. You know, I think that, uh, you know, we've done studies and Wilmer and others have done it as well that, uh, you know, you, you ask people you know, how often are you taking the drop? And they tell you 100% and they're taking 70% of the drops. And, you know, that's that's the average of people who are coming to an academic institute, you know, to get their care. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to remember to do something every day. And, you know, I think we can all uh, we can all acknowledge that ourselves. So, uh, you know, I think that that it's not just, you know, to, to take that off their plate is beneficial in a lot of ways. You know, uh, there's certainly strong evidence from SIGITS and other studies that, uh, that, that compliance matters in terms of, uh, in terms of, in terms of you know your 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 visual outcomes, I think what Christine said is absolutely correct. That you know a lot of people, a lot of our patients have, you know, some degree of ocular surface disease. But I think there's just you know uh, you know the other thing that I always mention, and, and not that this is the biggest deal in the world, but you know every time you pick up that drop, you kind of remember that you have a problem, that you have a disease. You know when you know when you when you take people off that drop altogether, it's almost that like it, it kind of like leaves their psyche, except when they come to see you. 
And so it's really nice to give people that freedom. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, and I think we, we kind of minimize the impact of, of drops on the ocular surface, but also on their quality of life and their psyche, like you just mentioned. Really good point there as well. And, and for me, I think I, I think that what's so frustrating is sometimes not knowing why, like you said earlier, why some people get worse. You know, that's the whole question. Do we have to get lower pressures? Or is it just minimizing fluctuation? I mean, and that we don't know, of course, 100%. But as you mentioned, there's other studies, Aegis has shown that and others, the more advanced you get, of course, the more we see that visual field progression is worse when you have more fluctuation. And so I do think that, you know, earlier trials sometimes don't show the fluctuation showing as much of an impact because we're looking at visual fields. And early on, you may not see this, the function change as much as structure, but no doubt that insecurity unknown of what is a relative contribution of poor compliance to someone progressing is frustrating. So I, for me personally, I trust someone with a hydrus having two millimeter mercury higher pressures than when they were on meds. You know, we look at the data from two to three to four to five years, you consistently see that more patients who are off of medications uh, in the hydrus versus the category alone group. And you see that still that maintained efficacy about a point, point and a half uh, better reduction over, over time between category alone and the hydrus. Uh, Christine, I got to ask you a question. So we talked about efficacy. We know it works. We know it lasts. Five-year data shows that it has safety and or sorry efficacy with being off of meds as well as IOP reduction. But talk about safety and, and talk about kind of, kind of um, secondary interventions. You know, one of the surrogates for me for, for, you know, is something really working is are they getting worse and do they need a secondary surgery? So talk about what the horizon five-year data showed us in terms of people who needed secondary interventional surgeries. So this is another exciting point to talk about when we talk about minimally invasives, especially as glaucoma surgeons, right? We want to try and avoid trabs and tubes as much as possible. Talk about chair time and hand holding for the rest of your life. Um, these patients, we marry them. So minimally invasives have honestly changed how my practice looks. My OR has switched from having more trabs and tubes to a lot fewer, not none. I don't know if we'll ever be lucky enough to get rid of those procedures completely. Um, but the data around Horizon really supported that, which was there was a shift in the amount of secondary incisionals that needed to be done after patients had a hydrus versus those who had cataract surgery alone. And so sometimes I think this gets overlooked too um, by our incredible cataract colleagues because they don't have to take care of these patients when something doesn't work, right? That's us. Um, and so it's so nice and it continues to be so important to talk about minimally invasives and the importance of them so that we can avoid these bigger, more detri potentially detrimental procedures to patients. Um, and so for me, uh, this is a, a nice take home point for everyone that we can avoid trabs and tubes more often if we're using minimally invasives. No, I, mean, I think, I think that's important to recognize as well. I mean, earlier we address the disease, the higher the target pressures are usually, right. And, right. and the better chance for a lot of these conventional outflow MIGs are going to achieve that target pressure. So that's why it's so important to do it to me as early as possible. And, but you need to have good safety, right. To do it earlier when you have someone who has healthier nerves and healthier, younger patients, a lot of times we want to make sure safety is good. So for the, talk about the safety. I mean, and we talked about how it's a longer stent and we, it's mostly in the canal, but just talk about the kind of the safety from two to five years and how we didn't really see much of a difference. Talk more about that if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, the endothelial, um, you know, the endothelial cell loss is, uh, is no different between the two groups. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the device explant or, you know, serious complications from it are, are very, very rare. You know, I probably put in about four or 500 of these. I did have to remove one of them uh, because it was kind of sticking back into the anterior chamber. So 
when you put them in, make sure you kind of go a little bit to the left and see, you know, the, the you know, the distal tip of it. But, you know, it, it's, uh, I tell people, and, you know, it's still true, is that, you know, I haven't had anybody who was seeing worse than, uh, than their baseline vision two weeks after surgery. So, and, and I put in hundreds of these things. And so I can tell people that like, you know, this does not affect your vision. It's, it's really not a vision threatening procedure. Not that it can cause problems. You know, you gotta be careful. You gotta be ready for, uh, you know, you gotta be ready for things that are rare. Um, but it's a very, very safe procedure. And you're not really like kind of looking at, you know, some of the severe complications that we see with a lot of our other uh, more traditional surgeries. Yeah, and I think people worry about things like PAS getting worse, you know, scarring getting worse. I mean, Christine, did you find that? I mean, in the studies and clinically, do you find that there's a big progression in terms of issues from one year to three years or five years, et cetera? No, not really. I like to go neo every once in a while and just peek at the hydrus and see what's happening. And most of the time, not much is happening. Um, very rarely have I found somebody who I am finding some PAS. And if I dig deep enough, usually there's some underlying autoimmune something that they forgot to mention. So I have had that a time or two, <clears throat> but for the most part, it's not something that would uh, prevent me from using this device on pretty much any open angle patient. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, with the studies from the horizon, they didn't really see a significant difference in safety between two to five years. So that long-term safety, I think, and no additional issues that we found was really important. And then in a lot of times, you know, we think we look at PAS, if you see ungonius and PAS, you know, and it may be, let's, even if it's partially obstructed the inlet, usually if you look at the data and the studies, we didn't see a significant issue with ILP. You know, as long as there's a small opening still there, even if you have a little PAS there, it hasn't seemed to be an issue with in terms of IOP control. So I mean, that's important as well in terms of inflammation. We don't see that as an issue. And you mentioned ECD. I think that's important. You know, that the side pass, as you mentioned, Christine, was something that got us all worried about. Uh, Long-term data, I think having five-year data showing that pretty consistent uh, ECD um, is pretty important. I mean, do you guys think about that with your patients at all anymore? I mean, is that something that, that crosses your mind? I mean, with the hydrus, I don't even think of it at all now. Do you? No worries. No, no worries. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's, that's an important concept as well. So, so they have, as long as they have open angles, I think that that's really important as well. So knowing that there was no in the studies of five-year data, no, so, you know, serious complications or decompensation, you know, with, um, uh, with ECL issues at all is, is really important. So, you know, I think in a nutshell, I think I'd love to just get your thoughts in general. I mean, so if you had to summarize the typical hydrus um, patient, uh, just give me, you know, give, give some pearls on how to select it, how to talk to patients about it. Christine, what do you think? I think in terms of what patients I'm looking for or anybody who's getting cataract surgery, unless like we talked about, there's some kind of other angle issue. If it's an open angle patient, whether it's mild or moderate, I'm discussing this device with them. I think that they're all good candidates at this point. We've got enough data to support all of that. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm pretty broad with how often I'm using this device at this point because I've been very happy with the outcomes. And Pradeep, how do you manage expectations. I mean, I mean, that's a fear, I think, from some surgeons too, as well. Like, hey, you know, what, what if it doesn't work? Or what if I don't, you know, they have to have a surgery someday? How do you, how do you manage the expectations before surgery for that patient? Yeah, no, it's a great point, Paul. I mean, you know, uh, we always have to remember that all these advantages that we're seeing are in the aggregate. So, you know, you can tell people that, you know, look, on average, people are on fewer medicines, many of them are on, none. you know, uh, you know, their, their pressure will sometimes be a little bit lower. Uh, you know, uh, some people will avoid surgery, but, you know, we don't really know for sure. And we can't guarantee that you're going to be in all those good outcomes. And so, you know, uh, don't be surprised if you end up on a medicine or two. You know, it's even possible that sometime in the future you may need surgery. I mean, all these things are going to be less likely, you know, if we put the stent in you. 
but you know we can't guarantee you that you know that that's going to happen yeah i mean it's really good points and i think it's important to recognize or tell patients look this is a journey and I'm with you in this journey for you to, until you until you leave, right? And the bottom line is we have multiple options for you, but I'm going to pick what, the, for, for me, what I think is going to give you the best chance of of uh, ke- keeping the highest quality life, the safest way possible. And guess what? If it doesn't work or if it does, it ends up not working over time, we have other options. And so as long as we understand that going forward, we have options. This is something I think would be the best for you at this time during cataract surgery. So I think you're absolutely right. Making sure that patients are aware of that, not everyone will have the same success, but they understand that ahead of time. I know there's other options going forward and we may have to change things later on. That to me is important. So this journey idea that there's multiple options over time. Well, we talked about some uh, some pretty cool stuff. You know, we talked about implantation and mechanism of action, the two and five year data and efficacy, as well as medication burden reduction and safety. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, what we worry about is is as progression in terms of visual field, right? That's how we kind of monitor our patients a lot of times. And so, you know, during the Horizon trial, the five year data, they actually went ahead and said, okay, let's do a post hoc analysis. Let's look at the the visual fields because even you know, visual fields were were measured by different time points. So they went back. And looked at the visual fields and that were collected during the Horizon trial, and did a postdoc analysis to see and explore, you know, what, what was the visual field progression and, and rates between the cataract surgery alone group as well as the, as the hydrus cataract group as well. So, just to remind everybody, you know, in in the Horizon trial, they measured visual fields preoperatively as well at 6, 12, 24, 36, 48, and 60 months. We had a number of time points for visual fields that were collected as well. Now, again, this wasn't a planned outcome. Uh, this is a post hoc analysis as well, but we looked at the data that was uh, obtained in the Horizon trial as well. And it's just important to recognize when you look at the, the global indices like the mean deviation, the pattern standard deviation, looking at two and five years, there was no uh, significant difference between the two groups, between the hydrus and the cataract surgery alone group, looking at this, those global indices as well. This, this post-hoc analysis was done at more fields and, uh, and they, they basically looked at, you know, point by point, uh, uh, as well as kind of put them in clusters in the individual field and there's different areas. And so they were able to kind of look and see, okay, what area is maybe progress more rapidly. And, but if you look in kind of more detail, looking at kind of progression rates of progression, et cetera, there was a difference. So I'm going to actually, you know, Pradeep ask you, when we look at rates of progression between a cataract surgery arm and hydrus arm, did, was there a difference? And what does that mean to you? Talk a little bit about the differences between the two groups when you look at rate of progression. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, you know, we all have to keep in mind, first of all, Paul, this is a, you know, secondary, this is a post-hoc analysis. And so, you know, we don't want to, you know, kind of take this as the primary reason to do the stent. But certainly it's encouraging that, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, perhaps this is uh, not only a procedure which helps people get off medicines and, uh, and you know, helps them, um, you know, uh, keep the pressure low. You know, this was, you know, a point-wise analysis. And so, you know, when we're talking about 0.49 decibels per year, we're not necessarily talking about the mean deviation. We're just talking about the point-wise sensitivities. But nonetheless, you know, you're, you're seeing that, you know, overall that, you know, points are generally doing a little bit better in the in the microstent arm you know this is uh you know this is something which is uh you know at least on average for the person who has the average effect is probably not going to be the difference between driving or not driving or reading or not reading yeah i mean just to, to remind everybody uh you know so the rate of progression in the cataract surgery arm alone arm was about point minus 0.49 decibels per year and the rate of progression in the cataract uh, hydrus arm was uh, negative 0.26 decibels per year. So there's a difference that way. Um, but to your point, you know, for the, you know, they're definitely have to take it in consideration. This wasn't a primary endpoint for them as well. And if you look at that, all clusters in the cataract arm kind of displayed a large rate of progression compared to the hydrus and the, the location and the clusters with the fastest rate of progression were seen in the cataract arm. But Christine, I want to get your thoughts on what does that mean to you? I mean, 
so Pradeep was mentioning how, you know, maybe a little bit of good, we're, we're helping patients. Um, but, you know, is 0.4 decibels or 0.2 decibels per year significant, maybe at one year, five years, who knows? But what does that mean to you personally? I think that this just helps us kind of ask the next set of questions, right, of what are minimally invasives doing compared to other ways that we're treating glaucoma? And is that changing the rate of progression? So I think this, again, could this be uh, buried in bias or could there be something more to it? And I don't think we can completely answer it purely based on the post-hoc analysis, but I think it's a really good stepping stone to start saying this is really important to us and it's something that we need to start watching more. The other thing that was interesting um, when looking at the post-hoc analysis is that there was actually this subset of individuals that were progressing at a faster rate. Um, and those patients or this cluster of individuals was found more prominently in the cataract surgery alone group as compared to when you're looking at the cataract with the hydrus group. So again, what does that tell us? Could it be potentially that it just, they ran, got randomized into a specific location? We have these fast progressors that just randomly got put into the cataract surgery alone group, potentially. Could this also potentially tell us that there's fast progressors generally that we don't detect well and that they tend to do better or slow down their disease with the addition of a minimally invasive, potentially. And if that is the case, that could be substantial for us, that we could be catching or slowing down those patients who, for me, I think I probably lose the most sleep over because those are the ones that they're losing at a faster rate with the disease. And again, we don't know. Going into the operating room, you can't look at their their eye or look at their history and know who that person's going to be. So again, I think it's bringing up a lot more questions um, that we want to continue to look for answers on in order to better treat patients. Yeah, no, really good points as well. I'm just going to make sure we clarify a few things. Those clusters, it was called the Garway heat clusters. Those are basically the approximation of the location of where the nerve fiber layers are. And that's how they were able to see, okay, here's where the visual field clusters are and how they relate to where the nerve fiber layer kind of uh, exits the nerve. These are, again, mild to moderate patients, so we don't know what happens in more advanced patients as well. And uh, we also got to make sure that, you know, we don't know the clinical relevance. So I want to make sure that's clear as well. And uh uh, you know, we don't know if the fast progressors in the cataract surgery arm group was the reason why we saw the differences. Again, just to be clear, a lot more to do have to still figure out. Just to, I mean, just to, you know, it is a fascinating thing. And, you know, something that uh, we see in the light trial as well is that, you know, these, uh, these differences and progressions seem to be independent of IOP. And so kind of, you know, we don't really know why that is for sure. Uh, you know, we don't know whether, um, but it kind of does lay out this idea that, you know, maybe the pressures that we're measuring in the clinic are not all the story. You know, is it is it compliance? Is it uh, is it a fluctuation in IOP? And so I think that there's more work to be done about you know whether hydrus and SLT and other treatments may have a benefit for pressure outside of the way that we're traditionally measuring it. Absolutely, absolutely. This is kind of why, as I mentioned earlier, I have so much more confidence. This is my personal opinion, uh, but I have more confidence in a, in a person's pressure. You know, after not having to worry about drops and, and the potential for fluctuation, the potential for peaks and troughs, and non-compliance and all that good stuff as well. So that it kind of all helps kind of align with that thought process, at least for me personally. Again, thank you guys. That was a great discussion and uh, hopefully it helped you guys out there as well. But hey guys, this is really, this was a lot of fun. You guys are awesome. It was so much fun to le learn from you and all the pearls. I know uh, we already probably are a little bit longer than we probably wanted to, but it was such a great discussion. Uh, so I just want to thank you all for uh, for joining us today. I appreciate that. And hopefully this was informative for you. Thanks to Christine and Pradeep and uh, hopefully we'll keep in touch and hope this helps. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much again. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of GT the Podcast. If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT the Podcast. Important product information. Caution. Federal law restricts this device to sale by or on the order of a physician. Indications for use. The Hydrus Microstent is indicated for use in conjunction with cataract surgery for the reduction of intraocular pressure, IOP, in adult patients with mild to moderate primary open angle glaucoma, POAG. Contraindications. The Hydrus Microstent is contraindicated under the following circumstances or conditions. 1. In eyes with angle closure glaucoma. And 2. In eyes with traumatic, malignant, uveitic, or neovascular glaucoma, or discernible congenital anomalies of the anterior chamber, AC, angle. Warnings. Clear media for adequate visualization is required. Conditions such as corneal haze, corneal opacity, or other conditions may inhibit gonioscopic view of the intended implant location. Gonioscopy should be performed prior to surgery to exclude congenital anomalies of the angle, peripheral anterior synechii, angle closure, rubiosis, and any other angle abnormalities that could lead to improper placement of the stent and pose a hazard. The surgeon should monitor the patient postoperatively for proper maintenance of intraocular pressure. The surgeon should periodically monitor the status of the microstent with gonioscopy to assess for the development of PAS, obstruction of the inlet, migration, or device iris or device cornea touch. The hydrus microstent is intended for implantation in conjunction with cataract surgery, which may impact corneal health. Therefore, caution is indicated in eyes with evidence of corneal compromise or with risk factors for corneal compromise following cataract surgery. Prior to implantation, patients with history of allergic reactions to nitinol, nickel, or titanium should be counseled on the materials contained in the device, as well as potential for allergy hypersensitivity to these materials. Precautions. If excessive resistance is encountered during the insertion of the microstent at any time during the procedure, discontinue use of the device. The safety and effectiveness of use of more than a single hydrus microstent has not been established. The safety and effectiveness of the hydrus microstent has not been established as an alternative to the primary treatment of glaucoma with medications in patients 21 years or younger, eyes with significant prior trauma, eyes with abnormal anterior segment, eyes with chronic inflammation, eyes with glaucoma associated with vascular disorders, eyes with pre-existing pseudophagia, eyes with pseudo-exfoliative or pigmentary glaucoma, and when implantation is without concomitant cataract surgery with IOL implantation. Please see a complete list of precautions in the instructions for use. Adverse events. The most frequently reported finding in the randomized pivotal trial was peripheral anterior synechii, PAS, with a cumulative rate at 5 years, 14.6% versus 3.7% for cataract surgery alone. Other hydrus postoperative adverse events reported at 5 years included partial or complete device obstruction, 8.4%, and device malposition, 1.4%. Additionally, there were no new reports of persistent anterior uveitis, 2 over 369.5% at 2 years, from 2 to 5 years postoperative. There were no reports of explanted hydrus implants over the 5-year follow-up. For additional adverse event information, please refer to the instructions for use. 
MRI information. The Hydra's microstent is MR conditional, meaning that the device is safe for use in a specified MR environment under specified conditions. Please see the instructions for use for complete product information.